lonely on the island and it can be very isolating. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot myself. I get real frustrated sometimes. I learned the hard way. What's up, guys? Today we've got one of uh, poker's most well-known broadcasters and hosts for many of the different TV shows. I mean, he's also accomplished other things in the broadcasting world. Hello, Ali Najad. What's going on? What's going on, Jungle? I'm good, man. Just uh, played an all-night session till like 7 in the morning here in Vegas and uh, slept and made sure I set my alarm to be up and ready to go with you. You know, I didn't know that he played like that that much, actually. Um, I mean, uh, I could have like put it together, like realized it. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your poker career uh, as well? Yeah, I mean, sure. If you want to dive right into it, you tell me. Now's the time. Why not? Because I don't know if that many people are aware of that or not, that you are like quite an avid player as well. Yeah, yeah. Um Pretty passionate, at times perhaps a little bit too emotional, as I'm sure you can relate to. Uh, Been playing for, I want to say, better part of 22 years now, 23 years. Um, Didn't really endeavor to play professionally. Uh, When I first got started, I was living in the Bay Area in Northern California here in the States, and um, I bumped into the likes of Eric Lindgren and Perlot Friedman, who are pretty well-known old schoolers um, at this point. And the two of them were looking to play professionally. And Prahlad and I had actually gone to UC Berkeley, Cal, with one another um, for college. And at the time, I was stepping away from school, and he had stepped away as well. And that time, there really weren't young people in the casino. And they sort of took me under their wing, and we were road dogs. And we were the only three young guys in the card rooms, and we would just run around. And in the span of a couple of years, maybe three years, I went from playing two dollar four dollar stud i think is what i started on and i got up to playing 800 1600 limit hold'em was the biggest i ever played um and it was obviously a a sharp ascent but the game at that time as i'm sure you are well aware was a very different animal um something like limit hold'em hadn't been solved as much and so when that began to happen uh i think mixed games really stepped in to create some more uh opportunity let's call it because the stud game players like for a horse game would have to play flop games the flop game players would have to play stud games and so there was some edge on on both sides of the spectrum and then eventually that got solved and we started throwing games into a hedron collider and coming up with crazy games of our own drama ha deuce to seven and the deucey and uh, you know uh, but it's it's fun and i think uh at the end of the day you know most people who are playing you know aren't necessarily doing it professionally, want to have fun. And at the end of the day, the opportunity financially for those of us who are doing it to supplement or create primary income um, is predicated upon the interest level from from people like that. So I host an 8160 mixed game over here. I always get flack because I don't realize how much I talk about it when I'm on stream. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice little limit. You know what I mean? You, you feel the, the swings a little bit, but nobody who's playing with me is, is you know, going hungry in the morning, no matter how bad it turns out. So uh, yeah, come on down. Anybody who's out there wants to play with us, except pros that are friends of jungle. Stay away. Oh, okay. I didn't realize I didn't have the invite. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other pros as well. I, I had no idea you had played 800-1600. I mean, that's like pretty big stakes. 
Um, That's pretty big, yeah. Look, hold on. You're like, you're basically like a serious player. I mean, you're practically like, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, yeah. To play that is like, pretty, yeah. Uh, it's it's intense for most, I would say. It was a long time ago, too, Jungle. So, like, imagine relative to today, right? If we're going back 18 years or 20 years, whatever it was when I played that big, um, what the value of the money was then relative to now. And a game like Limit Hold'em, I mean, that's not a split pot game. That's a one-winner game. It goes super fast. And my favorite part was, at the time, Joanna Krupa had signed this contract with Titan Poker. And so, somehow, I got enlisted to, like, teach her poker. And, of course, she's in Vegas, and she's sweating me while I'm playing 8 and 1600. And, like, the game doesn't go all that often, right? It was, like, a really special, unique you know, certain people were in town, whatever. And so I'm sitting here and I'm trying to really focus in this massive game. And she's over my shoulder, half-heartedly interested in learning, but really more like, I want to go. And like, I'm hungry. Well, I mean, it was just frustrating for me because I'm playing this massive game and I'm tasked with teaching her poker because she signed this deal with Titan Poker. And, you know, she was half-heartedly interested. She wasn't going to learn poker, you know, in an hour. And, uh, and then, you know, she was hungry. We're in Vegas. You know, there's a million things to do. And so, like, I could tell that she wanted to leave. And then at some point, you know, it was like, okay, we'll go get something to eat. And I'm buried like 50 or 60K, which, you know, isn't that much in that game necessarily. But it's a little frustrating when you know it's not like a 24-7 affair. And these games oh, kind of yeah. pop up and you got to strike while the iron's hot. And we you go and we eat by the like, time hey. we come back. You had to, like, leave because she was hungry? You couldn't just stay and make money, like, in this game after you're stuck 60K? I mean, is she... I might have also been a little hungry, Jungle. What's that? (laughs) I said I might have also been a little hungry. (laughs) I don't understand. Like, did you, like, have to do whatever she did or what? No, but, I mean, this is, like, this internationally renowned supermodel, and she's like, I'm hungry. What am I going to do? Shower her and be like... Yeah, we'll go eat. Like, go to snacks and grab something. Like, I, I felt responsible, so I just kind of... Oh, this is, like, kind of a really annoying moment. I, I It hit me that maybe you were hitting on her, like, uh, one of, like... She was very uh, attractive. She was very, very oh. attractive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it was maybe it was some of that in play? I mean, were you trying to, like... A lot of that was in play, for sure. Oh, yeah. That makes it <laughs> a little bit different, because, yeah, if that wasn't in play... Then I think yeah, been to sit there and grind it out. Yeah, <laughs> like if this is if this was like my second cousin who just came to Vegas and was like hanging out, I would be like, okay, snacks is over there, noodles is that way, like <laughs> whatever you need, you know. Here's my card, use my comps. Like, I mean, unless I was the... like obliged by my job or I was really trying to pick her up, yeah. I would not have. Uh, no matter, I mean, maybe she's like a bit. You know, if she wasn't super hot or I was like super into her, then uh, I would like take I I I wouldn't take her out. But if I was super into her, then I would I would have done the same thing. Yeah, or, I or, mean, look, I had agreed I had agreed to kind of like spend that night trying to teach her poker or whatever. I felt kind of oh, obliged as well. But I mean, it wasn't begrudgingly. The only part that made it whack was when I came back and the game was broken. And like, what am I gonna do? Go play hundred two hundred? Oh. Like, it's, oh, I that's see. Hard. Because um. You just were gone for a little bit. You weren't gone that long. 
Like maybe I mean, hour. like an hour or so, but you know what I mean? The game just fell apart. I guess the guy that was built around. I mean, it, we're going back a long time, so oh, I don't well, remember all the you details. You missed TV but... then. Like, whatever. It's not really a big deal when you look at it that way. You only missed an hour of 8.16, whatever that is. So, like, yeah, like, except I never saw that game go again after that day. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's not interested so in, you know, 800, 1600 uh, back in the day. What? I don't know how she's going to, like, learn poker because... You know, that's like a pretty solid hook is like a lot of money is at play. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she was pretty well to do herself, right, from being very successful. So I don't think the money was particularly impressive, which actually is generally a good sign, I would say. Right. Like it is. Yeah. She would have made a good it's poker player. Like a she sign didn't for really like care. earlier dating. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's, I guess there's that. Um, <laughs> so, uh. I mean, that makes me think also, like, it, uh, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but, um, you know, when you're into poker, it's, like, more important to be, I mean, there's various parallels here, here. when you're even, like, watching poker, it's probably ideal to be more into the strategy than more into, like, the numbers flying around, and that kind of thing, uh, more into Ali Najad's commentary, listen to huh. his uh, brilliant um comments and strategy or and that sort of thing that's generous huh that's generous that's generous i don't i don't know that the brilliance comes from my side of the booth but uh okay maybe the uh the hijinks for sure all right well the hijinks are, are also important <laughs> all right well we're gonna go beyond the borders here we're gonna be discovering the dark <laughs> of ali Najad. uh is that appropriate to say <clears throat> The dark sides? Well, they're not necessarily dark, but they're un the undiscovered sides. Um, sure, yeah. Let's do some discovery. All right, discovery. Dig away, uh, you honey badger. All right, well, I, I, oh, okay, I, I'll take that as a compliment, whatever that means. Honey badgers are one of the most <laughs> aggressive animals, right? I think they are. They, Well, they're famous for not giving a f***, right? right? Like, they'll, like, go fight a cobra, and, like, they're fearless. All right, I'll be and, a honey yeah. badger. I don't, whatever you want me to be. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> uh, okay, so... What was I gonna say? Okay, you you just said you just gave a bunch of stuff right there. I mean, one thing I did want yeah, to do yeah. was talk about your career prior to poker, because most people didn't know about it. You were like, it sounds like you were um, a host and you were already involved in media before poker, and then you moved over to it. You got more involved and you actually played yourself. Um, I mean, you also said something that, uh, well, first of all, I didn't know that your main passions were food and um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. That your main passions were food and travel. That's that's another thing. Uh, I like food and travel. Uh, definitely like eating food is pretty high on my interest lists, and um, I have traveled quite a bit, so there's something there too. Um, I'd also like to talk about at some point. You said the net negative of social. I presume you mean social media, right? <clears throat> I do. That's an interesting subject. Yeah. That's like a subject that I personally think about a lot. Uh, I think we'll. Yeah. Uh, would like to. I'd like to talk about that at some point, but let's start with. Um, let's start with. Yeah, just does. Uh, how? What else would you like to explain more about your career prior to poker? Uh, because you've been, yeah, on a few shows, and somehow you switched over to poker. Yeah, I don't know that um, the switch really didn't happen until later, like six or seven years ago, when I signed with Poker Go and I moved to Las Vegas from the LA area, which is where the bulk of, you know. Um, broadcasting takes place and the opportunities are um, is when I really kind of committed for lack of a better way to put it. Um, I had had this weird, 
relationship with it, not not accepting my work, my body of work in poker, no matter you know how prominent my role became in that industry as being a legitimate vertical within the scope of my aspirations and ambitions within the entertainment industry. I thought it was like this happy accident and I just happened to play poker and poker on TV happened to get big and I just happened to meet Maury Escondani on a cruise and I never felt fate to me, man. Like, yeah, sure. Right. I mean, there, there was definitely some of that, but you know, it didn't fit in line with my perceptions of like having been the byproduct of some well executed plan or series of decisions. And I don't know whether or not my inability to sort of accept it as um, a legitimate, you know, success within entertainment has to do with that. Um, you know, and it's misplaced that, that, you know, ideology on my part, but I started when I was 17 years old in high school, I was in the Bay area and, um, there was a job board that we had at my high school. And at the time I was like, because I had this big personality, I'd always done well in school, but I would get bored. I wasn't particularly engaged. I went to public school, so it wasn't really hardcore. It was a good public school system, but um, you know, within the first five or 10 minutes of a, of a class, I'd be like, okay, I know what's going on here. And then I would just want to focus on playing table football or making these <laughs> dudes laugh or, you know what I mean? It was anything but academia. Um, and so that ended up being channeled into doing PA work for our sports teams and hosting our video yearbook up in Albany, California. Shout out to that little hovel, um, right out, right in the shadow of Berkeley, by the way. So I went from preschool to college in like a square mile. Um, but I, uh, I ended up going out on an audition at the, you know, ushering of my friends who were like, you should go, you should go and try to get this job. It was a local, uh, youth magazine show called first cut. And, uh, so I went out and there was, you know, like a thousand people that responded to this open audition call to replace who had been the, the host at that point. And I, you know, get whittled down to, you know, a hundred people to 10 people to two people to me. Like and I was like, oh man, like I actually got this gig. And I think in part why I got it was because while everybody else, especially at that age where you're so impressionable and so concerned with pleasing people was wondering, well, who do I need to be to get this job? I kind of went in there with no expectations. I was like, well, I'm just going to be me. And if that works, great. And I've kind of gotten full circle in that regard in my career at this point, which I'll get to. But, you know, it's very easy to stray and just be so thirsty and want the work and, and feel as though, well, I need to be the person that I think this job wants me to be. Or even when you're dating, it's like, I need to be the person that I think this person wants me to be. And it's a completely unsustainable way to approach anything in life. I just... But I started at 17. I was thinking the exact same thing, um, but I mean, it's kind of a confusing thing, especially when you get into dating. Uh, that's a confusing um, way of looking at it uh, of, for a couple of reasons, but uh, I think in, I mean, it's also true in broadcasting. I mean, I guess in getting a job at all, frankly. Um, well, the world is sales, right? You're always selling yourself in some way, shape or form, like it would seem. You know, and well, you sell don't. your actual product. Don't sell an avatar. Don't sell something that isn't real. Well, that's know? true. When you're selling the product, you have to like work on things in a bit of a different way, and then maybe don't really worry about sales too much. I mean, like sales is still like you can still mess up sales in all sorts of ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's like you know that's why there's you know marketing strategists and all these kinds of things. Um, yeah. Did I interrupt you? Um. Uh, 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not put off by it, but yeah, I was just talking about how I had started at 17. I got this job. I ended up carrying it through from high school to college because I stuck around the area and went to Cal, uh, Berkeley. And then a couple of years in is when I took time off from school. And that's when I ran into Eric and Pallad and then started the poker thing. And when I came back to television, um, everybody who moves to LA and wants to work in the industry gets a waiter or waitressing job in the evening so that they can be available for auditions during the day and go to acting classes or whatever it is that they're doing, go to the gym. Like, and, uh, I didn't need to, to do that because I could play poker and there was multiple card rooms in, in the LA area and online poker was flourishing. This is pre black Friday. And so I had the luxury of not only making my own schedule, being able to work whenever I want while I pursued my career, but also sort of forging these relationships and this deep understanding of poker that was really devoid of anybody who was a working um, industry professional in terms of a host. So when poker on TV started to get hot, I really was at this sweet intercept of knowing people, playing the game, understanding it, but also having a very good body of work in the industry as a host. So you know, they didn't have to make a compromise where you'd you'd get a poker professional to, to be on air, but they were really not great personalities on air. Or you would get an on-air personality, but they didn't understand the game. And so dating back, you know, 15 plus years, uh, you know, I think my involvement in the industry might be pushing 20 years now. Um, you know, I, I took my first opportunities and I, I emceed uh, stuff for Maury just in the background with the mic calling the action to like a handful of people who were a studio audience sometimes paid to sit there for ambiance or whatever. But that, that vertical was always kind of the backdrop for me. I never really uh, accepted it, like I mentioned, as like a legitimate aspect of what I was pursuing in terms of successes. Um, prior to signing with Poker Go, I was working for uh, Headline News, CNN, HLN, uh, and ESPN prior to that. I uh, had a co couple of college football shows. Um, that I worked on, one was called Unite. It was like a panel discussion out of Bristol. Then I did a, a show called Road Trip, which was my favorite job I've ever had, where we would just travel around the country and go to college football games. I'm a huge college football fan. And uh, just be, you know, on the field, talking to players, practices, being kind of a, you know, a goof, um, lighthearted, right. not serious X's and O's type stuff. And I love that. I don't take myself too seriously um, all too often. So, uh, yeah, it, it was great. But, you know, this is... Interesting because when I'm in casinos, when I'm around poker players, when I'm around, you know, fans of that industry, very few of them um, realize that my career transcends poker, you know, going back you know, at this point, 25 years plus. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been the hand that has fed most consistently. I definitely have a debt of gratitude um, to the sport or game, however you want to regard it, um, for all of the opportunity that it's created for me. And um you know, I enjoy playing and uh, certainly in terms of my metrics for success, which is to kind of leave the blue marble better than you found it in some way, shape or form. Uh, I think laughter is the best medicine. And if I can bring a smile to someone's face in the 30 or 60 minutes that I'm given the privilege of the opportunity of doing so and create some relief from the rigors of life, because, you know, you and I might be really, really fortunate, you know, uh, relative to 
to even people in, in Western developed countries, you know, who are, who are struggling, especially at a time like now, to get them to not have to think about the stress of the day and just escape, lean back in an easy chair with a remote in their hand and a beer and just laugh because I put Nick on tilt or, you know, said something absurd um, that oh, mission accomplished. That. You know, even I mean? though I'm friends with Nick, but yeah, that, that puts a smile to my face a little bit. I mean, I'd rather you put other people on tilt than Nick. Don't go after Nick too much. Don't go after you. You're on my podcast, buddy. You don't know what I'm capable of. <laughs> oh, believe me, I do. I've been front oh, and center in Bobby's room. <laughs> oh, I guess you, you were on that other thing, too. And, and I guess there you really saw what I was capable of. Um, I think you did. Anyway, uh, so I didn't know I was talking to a podcast champion. Just in case you didn't realize, if you got the job out of oh. people, okay, that's like solid. That you won a tournament. In case you didn't realize, that's you just yeah, won right. A podcast tournament. Uh, you know, I did a podcast too. Did you know about this? Did you know about the one that I did with Joe Seabock and and Gavin Smith before he passed away? Called Poker Road Radio, or does that predate you? Uh, um, no, and also I just realized in my head I was being dyslexic. dyslexic. You won the host. You're a host champion, right? Or <laughs> yeah, longer. yeah. I didn't realize you did a podcast. Also, no. Yeah, man, it was fun. It was actually, uh, I talk about how I made more in one weekend working for NBC than I did in an entire year working on that podcast. And we were really like at the early, early stages of podcasts, like becoming a thing. Um, but we would travel around and we would follow the World Poker Tour. And it really was like, you know, there was a handful of, of nutbag, lunatic, young you know, poker players that were running around, you know, just in our 20s. And we were just the goofs that had friendships with all of them. And so we would just set up our podcast in the back of the WPT tournament area. And then when play was done for the night, we'd have a guest come on and we'd talk about all the hijinks from being on the different stops on the tour and the stories from the night before. And we were really just like three knuckleheads, man. And to this day, I will get people who, when they bump into me or even on social, will say, hey, man, Loved you on Poker Road Radio. And I haven't done that show in 12, 13 years, you know? And and still, the impact that it made back then um, was really, I guess, profound for a lot of people. And I certainly had a blast doing it. And I have really, really fond memories of that. Podcasts are cool in that way. They're super liberating, right? Nobody tells you what to do. You get to call your own shots. And, and we definitely did that, perhaps too much. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they are. Uh, there is a lot of freedom. Maybe... There's a lot of uh, fun EV to be had, you could say. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's podcasts aren't about the money. You can't be in the podcasting for the money, uh, as far as I'm aware. Well, unless you're Joe Rogan. Yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> I mean, then you can. Well, yeah, but like, that's like saying, well, well, that's one funny thing for like acting in many of these things. You can't like, you can't really pursue it because of the money. I mean, it's not like a yeah. money endeavor. Um, and, uh, I mean, I've, I've realized that and you have to pursue these like softer things, but like there's riches in the softer things too. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can, you can no doubt about it. get rich in fun, for example, or get rich in, um, discipline or you can get rich in whatever empathy or whatever. No, I wanted to say, by the way, one of the things I think that gives you, um, a, uh, a charismatic edge is that. Uh, perhaps you like because you like to bring a smile to everyone's face. And one thing I noticed about you is that uh, you see, always seem bright and always uh, you kind of bring out the positivity, at least to me when I see you and uh, with and how you smile and that sort of thing. I don't know if other people yeah. told you something like that. 
Well, catch me on a big downswing in my game. <laughs> you okay. might not have the same opinion. Oh yeah, but yeah. uh, well, no, no I'm emotional. It's uh, it's quite it takes quite some talent to uh, be smiling on a downswing. My personal uh, method is to try to use humor because usually, no matter how things get bad, things can get. Uh, you can always kind of, if you can distance yourself from them, they always are kind of like ridiculous. Like there's a point where things are so bad that they're kind of ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I can't yeah. always talk and think about it. When you're talking about the bright and positive things, certainly like when I'm on air, like I feel a, a responsibility to do that. I mean, that's how I approach my job. And I, yeah, I think true. that, you know, I think that if we're going to get philosophical, I think that at the end of the day, what anybody is pursuing is happiness. So going back even a step further to what you talked about in terms of the riches, right? It's good that you have recognized, and I've watched you evolve, by the way, Jungle. You and I have not been like fast friends or anything. We haven't had that that time. This is going to be probably the most substantive exchange that we've we've had throughout the you know decade plus that we've been acquaintances and in one another's orbit. But I've watched you evolve, and I and we have many mutual friends who I think would attest to the same thing. And actually I'm super proud of the fact that you've got this show going and you're, you know, you're doing these things and I've watched you kind of experiment and dabble in, in once you've kind of succeeded financially in figuring out, well, what is it that you want to do with that success? And that's been awesome. And it's, it's, I think it sets a nice example for a lot of the other peers that you have to be thinking on a level of like, well, look, man, there's life beyond poker. Um, and you can love the game and be passionate about it. Whatever it is that you're doing, you should be passionate about it because at the end of the day, all we're trying to be is happy. We get duped often by, you know, this consumer engine that breeds this idea that we're inadequate, indoctrinates us with that, and then makes us go and buy things or whatever it is that they want to manipulate us into doing. And this is not conspiracy theory. This is just simple fact to like spend our money to get the fix, you know, the dopamine, the adrenaline, whatever it is so that we can be happy. So if all you're doing is pursuing money, then you're falling prey in a really, really bad way to that idea that the money will be happy. And all kinds of experiments have shown you make a certain amount of money to, to meet your need. And then everything after that really does not add to your base happiness yeah. that much at all. And in fact, it can start to affect it negatively, right? So all I'm saying, and it's not like I'm, you know, Siddhartha or Buddha over here, but like just... Figure out what it is that you're passionate about, (laughs) but like figure out what it is that you're passionate about, what you love to do, do that. It will never feel like work if you're able to make a job or a career out of it. And eventually that you'll be doing really good work because you love what you're doing and it won't go unnoticed and money will come. You know, I'm not saying I'm part of Oprah's book club and I read the secret and I expect checks to show up in the mail, but like, you know, I just, it, it will happen. Like, and I think a lot of people fall prey to chasing the money, um, and I think that's a, a, a pitfall for sure. You know, oh, I could play bigger than I do, but I don't because I don't want the stress. You know, For me, it would be stressful to play bigger than what I'm playing. I think there's many different pitfalls, and that's one of them. I mean, another one is simply vanity for like the, uh, the fitness industry and things like that. I mean, there's all sorts sure. of – I mean, it's, it's anything that – I mean, uh, the Buddha would have said it's anything that – I mean, there's all sorts of subtle examples too. It's like even like worldview, which I probably fall prey to a bit. Um, it's kind of hard to unravel a lot of these things. It's, it can be progress, for example, uh, the need to progress. I mean, I've also fallen prey to that one. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not like 100% on that. It's, it can be, it can be like sex. It can be fucking anything. Um, yeah. But it, it just happens when. 
the uh, you can say the fruit of what you're doing uh, becomes more important than what you're doing. Uh, I actually have a good metaphor. Um, I mean, this is like a kind of a big topic, and it's kind of confusing to unravel it completely. But it, if you imagine yourself as like a garden tender, I was just thinking about this today. And uh, all of a sudden, now you're looking after searching for fruit all the time instead of tending to your garden, then your garden's going to suffer, right? And in the long run, the fruit will disappear more and more as well. And you become essentially right. like someone who takes from the whole, like, uh, what is yeah. it, the farm or the series yeah. of gardens. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it's just a, it's, I mean, people always say follow your passion and all that. I think really, um, I've been thinking about that a lot because, you know, as my incentives have shifted a bit, I mean, I rediscovered my passion for poker, but in a different way. Um, I've been rediscovering it and figure out how to apply it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's almost a little bit tricky in a sense because... I just remember finding for myself that I, I would hear this advice myself and I would just like almost ignore it. But I can only imagine that's even more and more so for people who are financially struggling. For example, it's like hard, it's like cool story, bro. Uh, yeah, I need some money, man. I have to pay my bills. Uh, but definitely yeah. if you get to the point where you have the money, it's kind of like, well, who cares? I mean, that's what I found. Like, who cares if you're a little bit richer relative to how you were previously? Who gives a shit? Like, I personally don't. Um, and that's also, by the way, that why I, I admire people like artists and guys who are, like, really all in um, and aren't, like, really making any money uh, or, like, musicians, for example, that aren't, like, super wealthy or anything like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're really all in if you're, like... There's a purity about it, right? Like, there's yeah. something to be admired about somebody. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm like, maybe this dude's got it figured out. This dude's sitting in the middle of like a, a college campus main drag playing a, you know, a hang drum with a beanie and like a backpack. And that's all he's got, you know, doesn't know whose couch he's sleeping on tonight, but he's just doing what he wants to do. I mean, there's something romantic about that idea. You know what I mean? And, and I'm sure there's a middle ground there that is probably the sweet spot. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do observe people from time to time, especially creatives, right, who recognize that this is what fuels them and this is what they're passionate about and and you know you see what they're able to accomplish like you know it'll i'm brought to tears regularly by by people whether it's music or art um who create something beautiful uh you know what i didn't realize your first name is oliver oh yeah yeah that's my legal first name so i i was uh born in the states but my parents emigrated from iran and so my actual Persian name is Ali Reza, and I'm, maybe you've known some people named Reza, maybe you've known some people named Ali. Yeah. So what was interesting about it was they didn't want me to have this like really ethnic name and nothing else. So uh, they watched this movie called Love Story, which I think won Best Picture in like 77 or something like that. And the main characters' names were Oliver and Jennifer. And so those were the two names that they gave me and then subsequently my sister for use in the States, you know, in school and everybody that knew me as Oliver called me Ollie, like O-L-L-I-E. And then anybody who was like Persian that, you know, knew me as Ali Reza would just call me Ali. Mm -hmm. And it all really sounded the same. And when I got to college, I was like, look, man, like everyone's calling me pretty much the same thing anyway. Let's just go with Ali. And, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's been that ever since.
Oh, okay. Okay. Why, are you going to steal my identity and, like... Well, you know, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking of calling you Oliver Twist, actually. That that was what I was thinking. Is like that seemed like an obvious nickname of sorts, but I don't Jungle, know. you can call me whatever you want, buddy. You're okay. you're the jury's in on you. Okay, okay. Is that the see? Like these are the perks potentially. You know, I don't know why I got that one, but uh, maybe it's because I dressed up a bunch and gave you commentary. I don't know. Maybe I actually have I have conversations with people about you, like way more than our like friendship or lack obviously of a friendship more acquaintanceship would suggest i would i would be in a place to have and i think it's because people find you really interesting and fascinating but the one thing i always come back to is like because there's so many funny stories about you right like the the, the screaming a black cab to a halt in london and running out to oh, grab an ice cream and then come, like disappearing for five minutes and then coming back to the cab well, and apparently you did it in serious. south africa as well according to jason but anyway the the thing that i always come back to is i'm like Say what you will, like, I've always gotten the sense that the dude is pure. Like, whatever it is that's going on, like, don't ever, if if you felt slighted by something, don't ever feel like his intention was to slight you. You know what I mean? Jungle's just being jungle. There's not, like, ill will there, per se. Um, and that's just, for me personally, been always my experience. And so... I don't ever let any of those quirks or nuances or anything like affect me negatively because I just, I, again, I have this, the jungle, the jury's in on jungle and like the dude is pure. So like, you know, it's, I just observe and appreciate. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, uh, that means a lot to me. And I uh, imagine, I, I think I'm pretty pure as far as it goes. I'm like literally pursuing to be as pure as possible for various reasons. It can be lonely on the island and it can be very isolating, right? when you have to come into contact with such a wide array of people in day-to-day -day life, right? If you mm -hmm. engage and you get out there and like, I get real frustrated sometimes. And, and I'm like, why is it that you're struggling to understand this concept? Like I feel it when I'm on the phone with like a customer service rep sometimes, right? Like I don't want to make any judgment out there. Right? Like, but by and large, I would say that, the, you know, the, we're not finding, you know, uh, the foremost scholars on earth working in that capacity. Right. And so you can become impatient. You can become frustrated because something that seems so simple to you is something that can be really difficult for the average person to grasp. And then it dissuades you from, because you feel that emotion of frustration when you do bother to go out and interact with the world from doing so. And you're like, ah, oh, I can't deal with it. I can't be bothered. Like I just like, leave me alone. You know what I mean? You disengage, you pull back because of and this is kind of the gift and the curse of it, right? If you are super intelligent or if you have a super high EQ and you come around people like in dating or whatever, right? A lot of times I'm like a super empathetic person and then you don't experience reciprocity in that regard and you feel super like shortchanged and slighted and you're like, damn, why don't you care? Like I care, I can recognize that you're struggling with something and so I respond to that and I you know, take initiative to like be comforting or soothing and then when I'm struggling, you're not soothing or comforting toward me, but a lot of times it's because they don't even recognize your partner may not even recognize that. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I've noticed that a lot. Myself. I don't think a lot of people know, understand what it means to be a good partner. I mean, I did it myself, actually. Uh, I learned the hard way. I was like, um, I experienced myself on the other end. I met myself uh, on the other end. Oh. I was like, oh, like that. Okay. 
And that's I an can... important experience, Jungle, to get the full-length mirror put in front of you. I've had that too, man. And you're like, oh, this is what it's like to be with me. Holy smokes, that ain't great. Yeah, well, basically, I mean, I, I don't think I was quite as bad as this other person, but um, it, yeah, but it was it was quite similar. It just made me because in my previous relationship to this person, who is this person that I met, in many ways reminded me of myself. And uh, to, in the previous relationship, I like kind of didn't give a shit and like you know I had feelings, but I didn't really like show show them that much. And kind of at some point, uh, how do you say? Like I like I don't know. I just didn't show that I cared basically. Uh, and didn't understand, yeah, like I said, didn't, un didn't, like, just, like, kind of was myself in, like, a negative way, and just didn't think of, like, all the negative ways in which I was being, like, a bad partner, basically, um, and then when I had it on the other end, it was super frustrating, and it made me, like, want to change, and also try to, like, up the end on the whole, because, you know, it's kind of like, well, if I'm not going to make this better, you know, in dating, then who is? And so, like, what you put out there, well, hopefully you get it back, right? I mean, actually, that's the whole, the game. But, you know, what you put out there is what's going to, like, perpetuate more and more. Um, so, yeah, maybe realize, okay, well, I don't want to be like this. So, uh, I'm going to, you know, put my best foot forward. And it was also my way of trying to reach that other person, but it didn't work. Surprise! I mean, you just can't change people, as it turns out. Nope. It's just, there's just no, there's no like, you can't do it. Like, it's very, uh, it's very hard to change people. Um, or maybe there's an art who don't want to change themselves for sure, right? Like, it's an exercise in futility to try to help someone who doesn't want to help themselves, or to change oh, yeah. someone who doesn't want to be changed. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how to fix that one. That one's really tough. Uh, yeah. But uh, interesting that you've had to deal with that too. I've noticed that kind of a lot. But maybe, well, I'm sure it's both ways. Uh, like a lot of guys are knuckleheads. When I, you know, it feels like there's more guys that are knuckleheads than uh, than women. The dude, I always hear these like crazy stories about dating from women. That I'm like, wow, I'm like who are these guys, man? Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. But I mean, let's be fair. There's bad apples on both sides of the gender spectrum. No, no question. I mean. In particular, like I'm newly single as of about a month ago after like a, you know, pretty long relationship. And, um, you know, the prospect of, you know, being in the dating pool in a place like Las Vegas, where I don't think, you know, this is a city that attracts like, you know, the the intellectuals of the world. Uh, and that's super important to me. You know, like the all, the weirdos. all the weirdos. <laughs> I mean, it. You know, like in terms of professional industry, I feel like a lot of times like there's a lot to be desired as far as proficiency is concerned. It's the kind of market where, really? you know, yeah, man, because I come from California, like a lot of the attorney. I had an attorney draft a letter for me here and I read it and I was like, what are you in kindergarten? I was like, this is insane. I paid you how much to draft this? I was like, I can write a better letter than this. And I didn't even approach it from like, a, oh, I'm some elite. Whatever. I was like, this is just objectively bad. And I just feel like anybody that I've dealt with, whether it was construction or anything, it's like you would get eaten alive if you had to go to New York or L.A. or San Francisco and perform at this level. Like you would never cut it. And New York, um, and then going into like New York, you got to be legit. Like yeah, exactly. Like you just you'll get eaten alive. So and then in terms of like the dating, right? Like 
you know, women, and this is, you know, putting a stereotype out there, but the vibe I get is like, look, there's plenty of eye candy. There's plenty of really attractive, pretty people, right? But substance, that's not something that's really asked for in this market. People come from out of town. They just want to have a great weekend or whatever, you know, thank you, ma'am kind of thing. Uh, or they're just kind of shallow themselves. And so it works, you know, cause they're just gym tan laundry types or whatever. Um, and there's exceptions to every rule, right? Like, you know, um, hopefully I would be regarded as such, you know, I'm, you know, but I'm not your gym tan laundry guy that somehow is like smart as well. But, um, but the point being that like, you know, I, I have my concerns about this being the kind of place where you're going to find that wholesome, you know, values-based person who Vegas? <laughs> yeah, who's cultivated something beyond their, their physical appearance. You know, there's plenty of hot people here, but like, are there good people here? You know, this is a town where like, it's like where the, the grift is in Las Vegas feels that feels that way a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too apathetic. There's good people here as well. I mean, they're oh, doing for sure. great things, you know, I mean, but, it's not, uh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't go ahead. No, I, I mean, I like, I just, I know it's about who you surround yourself with, what circles you end up in. Um, and, and I shouldn't pretend that I don't have, you know, good people in my orbit cause I do out here in Vegas, but, uh, but you know, I mean, in terms of the dating pool or whatever, it can be a little bit daunting to uh, imagine the, the trouble is man, uh, you know, in my experience and uh, maybe I'm going to get blasted for this, but there's a, a measure of loose inverse correlation between, you know, I come from a culture that really values its personal appearance and like, you know, like being Persian culture is very, you know, demonstrative of like, you know, wealth and success and, and just valuing like, you know, your pain, it's, there's some vanity there, right? Then I come from an industry working in television where it's actually like somewhat compulsory, you know, Steve Buscemi notwithstanding, respect Steve, but like, this is not a dude who you looked at in central casting and went, oh, let's get this Adonis on camera, but he's a phenomenal actor. But by and large, it's an industry that rewards prettiness, right? Like men, women, whatever, right? Modeling, mm -hmm. acting, you know, being oh, on sure. camera. And oh, yeah. so... Between, between these two things, like I have been exposed to, it is important to me to have a partner who is very physically attractive by my own estimations, which fall in line a lot of times with the archetype that society puts out there, um, which I know is an unrealistic one at times, courtesy of Photoshop and whatnot. But, um, but anyway, like I have found in my experience that there's a loose inverse correlation between finding those outliers that are extraordinarily attractive, right? And who have put in the effort which most have to, whether it's a little bit of makeup or going to the gym or whatever it may be to get there uh, or being fashionable, right? That's big for me. And then also not completely abandoning all of the other pursuits and things that one should cultivate, which is mindfulness and soulfulness and a bit of spirituality and a bit of like, you know, um, philosophical initiative and being intellectual and cultured, like, like when you find somebody that's really high on that side of the spectrum, a lot of times I feel like they don't value that other side because there's an incongruence and maybe a distaste for, well, why would I go to the gym and just, you know, or go dye my hair or give a damn about designer labels? Like that's not important in the grand scheme of the world. And they're not wrong necessarily. Right. But, um, but for me, it's like, I want both sides. So did this turn into like a weird, like Tinder profile, video Tinder profile type of thing? Now? Not really. Like, I mean, I don't like, think Tinder my bad, bro. <laughs> I think Tinder has different problems uh, completely, actually. Um, Tinder just 
I mean, there's all that's short of attention fun. span theater, man. What's that? It's short attention span theater. It's like so terrible. Like you, you spend yeah. 0.4 seconds looking at a photo and then you're just gone, gone. It just gamifies the whole thing. Like well, it's yeah, that's not well, that's worse not than that. It exploits Ugh. guys. Uh, it exploits everything. It's terrible. It's like the fucking. It's the it's the worst. Uh, and people are realizing that. I mean, like one thing about Tinder is like something like 16% of women on it. Now imagine there's already something like a, a one to three ratio of girls to guys. And now 16% of the women are actually looking to meet. And now, um, of those, they go after the top 20%. The top 20% of guys or whatever get 80% of the girls. And of those, you know, it's not like, you know, the whole 20% is the same. It's the top 5% of that top 20% of guys uh, that get most of the girls or whatever it is, right? It's it's exponential. It's not, you know, uniform within that 20%. Uh, and, like, on top of that, like, most guys don't know how to present themselves and blah, blah, blah. So you need to be, like, basically an Adonis to, like, have much success on Tinder. And then not to mention yeah, you're, like, right. going through, like, not exactly the highest quality of women. Uh, so, I mean, I've even talked to guys that are, you know, very good looking and they're like, they don't even like Tinder. Like that's really saying something. Uh, it's also, you just think about the kind of, the kind of people in general, men or women that are going to be super responsive to a platform like that. It's like the shirtless selfie thing, right? There's stats on that. It's like, you are super vain. It's weird. Like my Instagram, for example, I don't put a lot of stuff that's like me, you know, but when you put something that's like your face. The number of likes that you get goes up so much, and I'm always like, "Ugh, because I it's I don't know." There's Is something that beautiful. I, no, 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 that's not it. It's 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 other people respond to that because they are cut from that cloth, so they yeah. are more responsive to others who are doing vain things. But it's the, not it's not Instagram. It's people. It's, it's, yeah, you know, Instagram's not necessarily the problem. It's just a, a conduit through which we're able to see, like, you know, sort of the the ugliness of society. But it also isn't doing anything to solve that problem. It's actually helping to fuel and perpetuate it, right? Yeah. I mean, when you look at, like, you know, depression rates, mental illness rates for uh, developmental-aged youth and adolescents and how back in the day social currency – for me in that phase of life was true friendship, right? That's Going out, playing in the dirt, you know, building forts, whatever it was, just hanging out. And now it's how many followers do I have? How many likes do I have? Kids will post something. If it doesn't get enough likes, they'll take it down. They'll feel inadequate. Like, and even just going into adulthood, every platform demonstrates this human highlight reel, oftentimes totally manufactured by people, right? But you're getting hit with the best moment of every single person's life all in a row, all day long, and it is completely natural to feel inadequate when that happens. And that sense of inadequacy is super pervasive, and it makes you unhappy, and there's studies done on the amount of screen time that you have in social media versus how happy you are. And it is a very positive correlation. The more time you spend on that crap, the unhappier you are. And that's part of why I don't invest more readily in it because – I don't want to have to feed some beast with content all the time, and I don't want to outsource my self-esteem to a group of strangers. I'd rather have it be the product of my actual relationships in life. And like, granted, I'm 44 years of age, but being 24, that's a lot more difficult message to kind of have in your head, 
you know, when oh, sure. the things yeah. that are, you know, aren't important to me now in my life. I remember I had an ex-girlfriend. I was a little bit older than she was. I was 34. She was 24 a little bit. Maybe that's a lot. I don't know. But I had so much compassion for her because she was like this L.A. club girl, kind of a sycophant, really obsessed with like advancement in that social sphere. And I had gone down that path. Right. Seems like... And I remember I just looked at her one time jungle and I said, I wish that I could explain to you how ultimately inconsequential all that you covet in the world will prove to be. But it was so important because she was being a 24 year old and I wanted her to be something more than that. But I was that same person. And it's like, I wish that I had somebody in my corner or in my ear at that age telling me those things, but it is an important step in the journey for her to arrive wherever it is that she ultimately did. It requires those disappointments. I could tell you, Hey, don't stick your hand in the fire. It's going to burn as much as I want, but you'll never really appreciate what that sensation is until that time that you stick your hand in that flame. That will be the most compelling means by which you'll arrive at that understanding. And so as much as a parent wants to protect their child forever, and I don't have any kids, but from these sorts of things, you have to allow them to slip and fall and dust themselves back off and get up and build perseverance. You know what I mean? And don't sterilize their life literally or proverbially and strip them from the opportunity to forge character and you know, tenacity and all of these things that will come from having your heart broken and fucking up. You know what I mean? Like it, it has to happen, you know? Sure. Uh, actually, I pretty much completely agree with you. Um, I want to point out uh, something that's really not that obvious that I had some experience with myself, even though I'm not, you know, a 24 year old woman trying to use my hotness to get in the, uh, you know, to, to move up in, in status. But I uh, have made the mistake of pursuing people of status just for the sake of pursuing or thinking that this will, like, you know, work out for me kind of thing. Uh, and it seems like what, what's that? As an advancement of sorts, like to yeah. kind of hit your wagon to them and ascend. Even if even if it wasn't like 100% black and white, it was more like, well, how do I advance my status? And I realized at some point that I don't look at it that way, basically. Um, even though I still want it, it has to be secondary to uh, what yes. I am. I mean, it's kind of the point of this whole podcast, actually. It's kind of a it's kind of a tough thing. You kind of do have to do, just be true to yourself. Uh, but the but when I heard you say that this like hot young girl is trying to like move up in the world. I'm thinking in my head what's going to happen here, uh, but I'm not. I don't know 100% for sure. But my read on this situation is basically this girl is going to use her hotness to. Uh, I mean, are we being real or are we not? Look, the reality is that all of our looks will fade. Father time is undefeated. But I, I hear what you're getting at. Like your well, physical attributes are what you're looking to leverage to get somewhere in life. Well. I should hope that you're going to cultivate more than that because ultimately that asset will depreciate. And what are you left with at that point in time, right? Um, I mean, it's not just that. I mean, that's a really – that's one of the problems with that is that it's not going to stay the same. And like uh, I'm, I'm kind of starting to see how this plays out in the sense of like when people themselves look at things that way, well, guess what? So do the other side. And then you know, all of a sudden when you get older – uh, you're no longer having value. Um, but uh, that's one thing. But I'm thinking in my head, you know, like it's um, 
this sort of situation leads to like what is moving up in the world like i mean i guess for a girl you can find some like rich uh guy that that you know i don't know what their goal end game is but if it's like it just seems like if there's lack of substance uh behind it all it just seems like a situation where it will ultimately collapse in some kind of way or have a lot of negative uh, how do you say, magnified negative repercussions, because, um, because, how do I explain this? Because, uh, like, you won't be able to, because one thing is, like, you won't be, know how to manage this kind of power, because you don't have the power, literally. You, you, uh, you're kind of, um, well, I guess the hotness girls, I mean, hotness is quite, quite powerful, I would say. Uh, but, um, yeah, if they have all these, like, big connections and are not exactly allied with them, then they can just, like, and especially when it's something as superficial as hotness, where there's lots of plenty of superficial hot Vegas yep. girls or uh, L.A. girls or whatever, you know, it's like one of these things that can easily turn around on you, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Or You're just, you're disposable, you're, ex you're exchangeable, you're, you know, easily replaceable. I would say for you, in terms of what you shared, um, where you had that that recognition that like okay you were trying to like align yourselves with, with people of you know some sort of prominence and, and you know like a desire to I don't know advance my litmus test is always and I've interviewed celebrities I've come into contact with them throughout the course of my career or whatever and I have like a couple that I call friends and I always ask myself if I took all the fame and the money away from this person when I when I meet them for the first time or whatever would I still be interested in, in having a relationship with them? You know, whether it's romantic with a woman or, or a friendship with a guy or whatever. And if you can't say resoundingly yes to that, then there's no reason for you to be in that person's w world. You know what I mean? Or for them to be in yours is a better way to put it, right? Like, I, I better like you and That's I better it. think highly of you as a person. Oh, thank um, you. Because, <laughs> but I mean, like the, the most, I, I think, you know, the most valuable asset that we have is time, right? It's finite. It's constantly diminishing. So choose wisely with whom you, you want to spend it um, and, and really value it, like, adequately. Don't, you know, I mean, a lot of times I feel like I blinked and, and I turned 44. I'm not having a midlife crisis on a podcast by any stretch of the imagination. But, like, you know, sometimes you look back and you're like, maybe I spent more time than I should have in a particular relationship or in a particular friendship or pursuing something. And you're like, no man, be mindful of that because with, you know, the younger friends that I have, I, I always try to give them, you know, um, not from some omnipotent standpoint, but rather from one of just, uh, wisdom, humble wisdom, like you will blink and you will end up much older than you are today. And if you're not mindful and you're not thoughtful about the choices and the decisions that you're making, you will be very inertial, and I still am guilty of this, you know. Um, and it's like I don't—I would hate for anyone to have any regrets about that type of stuff. So um, even my choice to like come on and spend an hour or two like doing this podcast, like it's a choice that I'm making because I, you know. And I turn down. It's not like anybody who hits me up to do something I say yes to for what it's worth. Um, but I said yes because I was like, no, I—I've always been fascinated by you. 
I appreciate that you're endeavoring to do things outside, you know, the scope of simply being a poker player. And I want to be supportive of that. And that was all it took. That was the simple calculus for me. I talked to Nick. I know he was on and he said, you know, no, Jungle takes it seriously. Like he's really trying. And I was like, okay, cool. If it's not like a, you know, some big joke to him, then yeah, I want to be supportive of that. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm taking it more and more seriously, actually. And uh, I appreciate that. I didn't know that was why you came on, but uh, uh, yeah, that means yeah, a lot to sure. me. Um, Good. I'm glad. One thing I'll say, yeah, I mean, I basically completely agree. And I mean, that's as it should be, as I've discovered. Um, and I don't think a lot of people have really discovered this because I hear all the time people talk about like, oh, they're going to like network and make you know, these big connections with money. And I'm sitting here thinking in my head, you know, I've tried to network a bit, uh, you know, in ways that I, that uh, seemed pretty, like, like reasonable. Like, I wasn't, like, ever a big networking guy or whatever. I was never really that yeah. disingenuine. But, like, I never really saw, like, the end game of, like, how this translates to money uh, or whatever it is uh, other than, you know, like, they kind of hope that, the only way this does is basically if you have like a real connection with one of these guys anyway, like it still has to be a real relationship. Uh, and I mean, like in that case, then you still have to find the people with the real relationships. And still another thing that people don't realize is if you uh, form a relationship with someone who has a lot more leverage over you in it, then uh, I mean, you're kind of at their mercy, right? It's not really a great situation. Um, and again, like it can turn on you and, um, and if their values aren't aligned with you, I mean, eventually they're going to screw you in some kind of way. At least that's what I found. Okay. Um, I do want to, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I feel are very important that sure. you totally glossed over. You said your real passions are travel and food. Uh, yeah. and we didn't talk about that at all. So we got to like, you know, get the, you've been to a lot of places. You, you must know like yeah. the best food and the best travel spots or that kind of thing. Why don't you give us uh, some of your finest suggestions? Um, I mean, the pinnacle of my dining resume was uh, I did the number two and number one restaurants in the world back to back. Um, this was going back pre-pandemic. Uh, it was El Salar de Can Roca in Girona, Spain, and then got on a plane the next morning and went to uh, Modena, in Italy and did Osteria Francescana. Basically, I got really into uh, the show uh, Chef's Table on Netflix, and mm -hmm. it really beautifully like tells the story of the chef. It's like the human interest element, which creates this like beyond just the food and the restaurant like appreciation for all that has gone into this person becoming this prominent chef. And it's that struggle and that appreciation for like the effort that has gone into it that I get this emotional connection with. And I'm like, I'm going to go eat that person's food. And so basically what I've been doing for like the last six or seven years is you go to the world's 50 best or Netflix chef's table and identify the places that, you know, the story was one that you really wanted to connect with, or, you know, the food looked extraordinary or the destination or some combination of hopefully all three, and then make it a point to travel to these places and experience you know, these meals. Um, um, yeah. Did you say the last 50 or 60 years? No, 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 no. The last five or Wait. six years, oh, excuse um, me. Okay, what okay. I've been doing. No. no, it's okay. It's okay. 
Um, but the world's 50 best restaurants, it's a list that gets oh. published annually. And so, oh. you know, between that and Chef's Table on Netflix, I was just ticking off all of the places that um, I really wanted to, to go to. Um, and then in terms of travel, uh, back when I was working for ESPN on this college football show, I was traveling really regularly on a week-to-week basis. And I, uh, I felt like such a fish. And I went really deep down the like points and miles rabbit hole, like credit card points and like miles and award travel and all of this. And so um, I became probably one of the top five or 10 people in the country. This is like very lesser known thing um, in that space. And I actually have a side business where I do consultation for production companies in Los Angeles who spend tons of money on credit cards every year and they have like millions of American Express points, for example, or Chase or Citibank or whatever, and they redeem them for award travel to save on their operating costs. And then instead of flying in business, their C-suite people will fly in first because I'll help work that out. And like, I know what program to switch to send them, you know, transfer the points and the miles to and to redeem them. And I have software that scrapes the internet to, to find these seats. And anyway, that's a big passion of mine too, because like I would never really spend 20 grand on a first class seat, you know, that costs three X what a business class seat would. Um, and a lot of times I wouldn't even really want to spend the money on a business class seat. I won't, I wouldn't fly coach at this point cause I'm just too spoiled, no judgment. But, um, but I use all of the, you know, points that I have from spending in my day-to-day life uh, on credit cards to also fly to these destinations to enjoy this food um, in first class. And, for me, like a lot of people, it's so weird to me. They'll say, oh, I hate traveling. It's just so far. I'm like, the farther, the better, because I enjoy from the minute I get to the airport, I'm enjoying the vacation or the trip because it is an extraordinary experience from that point forward. But I'm also not breaking the bank to do it because, you know, I'm hustling to get these flights um, in that way. So I'm just a glorified extreme couponer with a pension for travel and a fabulous credit score is my little blurb on on Facebook. Okay. I mean, um, I may need my, yeah. your help myself because like traveling really messes me up actually. Uh, and yeah. the uh, jet lag, you mean, uh, the jet lag. And I just find it totally messes up my schedule. And, uh, let's yeah. just say I'm not the best with these coupon things at all. Uh, <laughs> you're just, you're just bad. going off. Yeah, yeah man. I'm just punting it hard. Um, yeah, and I need yeah. like a day or two to even like get my shit together after I travel. I've discovered, um to at least somewhere pretty far because i need to like shift the whole schedule and all this we'll get you on a program jungle hit me up we'll get you on a program all right all right then we'll the work job you program. out all right yeah. but, uh everyone travel and food hacks with ali najad <laughs> uh, undercover uh also food and uh travel extraordinaire of sorts connoisseur whatever title you would like uh yeah uh, I mean, actually, I had uh, even more topics, but I really don't have time now. Uh, it's been great having you on, Ali, and uh, thank you for uh, yeah, thank you for your time and um, yeah, all your insights. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Good luck with the with the podcast moving forward. And obviously, if you ever want to touch on whatever it is that we didn't have time to touch on today, and you find yourself with a week where uh, you need to plug somebody in, hit me up. I'm your guy. All right, cool. Thank you, Ali, and uh, yeah. wish you the best. All right, likewise. Thank you.